Please turn with me now to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And when the Lord and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way, at the encampment, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we pray, Lord, that our end would be as these people who were glad when they heard these things and bowed their head and worshipped at the end of them. How we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds, our ears and our eyes to receive these things, and that we would understand, that we would be blessed, that we would have fruit spiritually from these words that you give to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening we come to the second half of Exodus chapter 4, from verses 18 to the end. Now I, I must admit that I did not particularly look forward to this chapter. Some of the events and some of the issues here are a challenge even for some of the greatest commentators and even men such as Matthew Henry, which take on some of the most obscure passages without, without blinking uh, admit their difficulty with some of the things here. And I would plainly admit that I am no better than they. And taken as a whole, the section contains a fair amount of blood, judgment, death, and hard words. But that is precisely the story. That is the story of the Exodus in a fallen world in the context of a whole race of sinners, all of whom, every one of which deserves judgment and death. The business of redeeming them is not going to be clean, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be nice and neat. It's going to involve blood and death. 
And that, friends, is the core of the gospel. There is no other gospel other than the one involving in blood and death. There is no other exodus. There is no other redemption than the one that involves blood and death, and particularly the sovereign hand of God directing the affairs of men. These things are for the salvation of God's people, and we must believe them and receive them. Now, wonderfully, all of this, as we so often see in the dark sections of God's word, we often see the light as well, and wonderfully it ends with the news of faith of God's people as they come and embrace the gospel of God's visitation in faith, and that is our situation as well. There is much blood to be shed, but it's not going to be our blood. And there is much death, but it's not going to be our death. And in fact, in this gospel of the redemption of God's people, all we have to do is believe and watch as God accomplishes redemption for us. We are thankful for that. Well, the title of the sermon tonight is Salvation and Judgment in Blood. Salvation and Judgment in Blood. And I will just, we're, we're just going to take all of this as a whole and deal with all of the materials. So we have these five points. Of course, they'll be a little bit briefer than, than usual. But five of them, old enemies dead. Secondly, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Thirdly, firstborn for firstborn. Fourthly, husband of blood. And fifthly, the people believe. Well, we begin, old enemies dead. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your way are dead. In other words, the way is clear for you, Moses, to go and do this because there is death. Some men have died. That's how this is possible. We must not forget that Moses fled Egypt for his life and why that was. Remember back to Exodus chapter 2, not so long ago in Exodus 2.11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now that didn't save him, did it? And children, I'd remind you, one of the things that you should be always thinking of is that your deeds are not hidden before God. Soon enough they will find you out. And there's no just hiding the evidence before God. But in the larger picture, this was his attempt at saving his people, killing one of their Egyptian tormentors. Judgment, of course, had to happen upon the Egyptian in order to bring salvation for the Israelite, and it was all at the cost of blood and death. But because this was Moses' way rather than God's perfect plan, there was then the matter, the undealt with matter of the blood of the Egyptian, because by rights, Moses should have been brought to justice for it. Because back in Exodus 2.15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. Of course, that, that word we'll see again in this chapter, sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Well, now 40 years later, so this matter remains unresolved. It's sort of like any case of manslaughter. Uh, In the gods later dealing with it, Moses would later put into place the provision of the cities of refuge that manslayers would would flee to, and then at the death of the high priest, they could go free. It has something like this. There must be death in order for the manslayer to go free, right? And it's something like that. 
And the Lord declares that all the men who sought your life are dead, whether violently, and there were many wars, there were many assassination attempts uh, for these pharaohs and, and these days, or whether peacefully, their death had put an end to this conflict. God, in his sovereignty, had taken away their life, and now Moses, the way is clear for Moses to return. So that's the first death involved here. Secondly, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. So first, the old enemies are dead. Secondly, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. All these things that are necessary to bring to pass this great work of redemption. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, that does seem difficult. That does seem contradictory on the face of it. I thought the whole point of these miracles was so that he will let the people go. And the Lord is saying, no, I'm going to harden his heart. You know, that whole issue is brought up and and taken up by Paul in Romans chapter 9. I'll just read it. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. The immediate question is the question that, uh, uh, that would occur to us, is the one that occurs to the ones that Paul is writing to. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because that is a question in our hearts. Is, is this not unrighteous? Certainly not. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And that is shot through everything that we have seen in the Gospel of Luke as well. Do you understand that God does not need to give you mercy? He is not compelled to give anyone mercy, because if he is, then it is not mercy, it is justice. You can go to God to say, you have no choice. You must grant this to me, this favor, this compassion, this salvation. It is not mercy. It is just justice. You are the rich young ruler. You come and you expect to be dealt with in justice because you're so good and wonderful that God has to give you eternal life. That is not our situation. We are all fallen sinners. If God shows any mercy, it is his sovereign mercy, and he determines whom he will give this to. He has that prerogative as God. Now, let me say, by the way, that we do not have that kind of prerogative. We are not God. We go around sharing the gospel with everyone. If it were to us, we give the the gospel to to whomever. Now, if they they reject it and, and they begin to trample upon it, we don't, give our, or we don't cast pearls before swine. But we certainly go and we preach the gospel. We do good to those who hate us. We preach the gospel to all who will hear it. But it is the prerogative of God to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. For the scripture says, going back to Romans 9, 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. That I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Hard words indeed. He's going to show his glory in this Pharaoh. And we know it's true. We know it is precisely in his obstinance and hard-heartedness that God would reveal and bear more of his holy arm against him. 
And that these, the intensity of these signs and wonders against the Egyptian people would increase until it comes to the greatest, until it's the death of the firstborn. And beyond that, then, the, the swallowing up of all, all of Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh himself and all of his army in the sea. God was glorified in the raising up of Pharaoh for his destruction. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That is God's explanation of himself, not that he owes an explanation to anyone. Indeed, that is part of Paul's logic, isn't it? Who are you to reply against your maker and to find fault with him? We cannot, we must not find fault with him. But thus is the explanation of God's word. And let me say that there is something that we call judicial hardening. It is not that, that, that Moses came to an amiable, friendly Pharaoh who said, Okay, sure. It was that Pharaoh himself from the beginning had a hard heart, as he always did, as his fathers did against the people of Israel. There was much prejudice and hatred and hard-heartedness already in his heart. And so it is not that God took someone who was with all of his might trying to let the people go, but rather as a judicial sentence, he further hardened and confirmed him in his hardening uh, as his heart was already hardened. And all this is going to bring about, as I say, the greater glory of God, the complete and permanent salvation of his people from Egypt. It wasn't a minor salvation, you see, that it otherwise would have been. Rather, it was in the complete and total destruction in Pharaoh because of his hard-heartedness that God's people were so completely and fully saved. Now again, isn't that, isn't that true in the sovereignty of God, of his dealings with the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, what if, what if uh, the, the people that had not stirred him up, uh, what if Pilate had not been stirred up so much against the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, he, what, what if, in fact, that, that the, the Lord had been let go uh, with just a scourging? Well, we wouldn't have been saved. It was God's sovereign hand of disposing things, yes. Uh, these people made their own sinful choices. The Jewish leaders decided, made their own sinful choices. Judas made his own sinful choices. But all the disposing of this was in the hand of God to bring about the complete and total salvation of his people. Sovereignty, judgment, salvation, it all works together. Well, that's our second point, that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is the sovereignty of God in these things. Thirdly, firstborn for firstborn. It just keeps coming. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. 
Let's begin by saying what an amazing thing of the identity of God with his people. Here, he is, he is not refraining from calling Israel his son. And he's saying, I, this is the way I feel about my people. He is my son, my firstborn son. He's precious in my sight. You dare not lay a finger upon him. I will do whatever it takes to provide for him, to save him. And you better watch what you're doing when you're dealing with my son. That's what the Lord says about his people. He's the, whoever t- t- touches you touches the apple of my eye. Isn't that a beautiful thing as God's people to walk around knowing that? Yes, we're, we're marked out for persecution and rejection by the world. But on the other hand, we are marked with the mark of God in which he says, you, th- those who touch my people I will not hold guiltless. They will be held to account. And therefore the martyrs in heaven call out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, until you bring, you vindicate, you avenge our blood. Well, let me say also, it was because of the death of the firstborn that Israel was saved. He says, look, this is my firstborn, this is my son, and if you don't let him go, I'm going to take the life of your firstborn. And it's absolutely true. This is precisely what's going to happen. It was because of the death of the firstborn that Israel was saved. All the other signs had passed. They had not worked. Pharaoh had refused to let them go. But it was when his own firstborn son was killed, well, that did it. And he finally, finally let Israel go. He, Israel was saved through the death of the firstborn. Now, I need not say what this is pointing us to. All of the, the, the book of Exodus, all of the, of the re, story of the redemption here in, in Egypt points us to the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a death of the firstborn. Now, back in Egypt, everything's better in Christ than what it was back here. Here, it's the death of someone else's firstborn that secures the life of God's firstborn. But as it's going to happen, actually, it's the death of God's firstborn that secures the life of others, of ourselves. This is pointing us to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would lay down his life. In fact, that God, the Father, would give his Son in order that that might happen. That's the language, isn't it, of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave him an atoning sacrifice. He gave him in order that he might die. That's what he came to this world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. He is ready for the slaughter in order that by his blood and death we are saved. But going on in John 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but... He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There again, we have both sides of the coin. There is both judgment and salvation to be found in Christ as well. Just the mere fact that there is a, a, a salvation, there is a Redeemer available that makes, the, the, on the other hand, the rejection of that to be destruction and judgment. There will be a firstborn for firstborn here in Egypt and, yes, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we glory in such things. Fourthly, a husband of blood. Verse 24, 
It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Again, amazingly, strangely, so hard to grasp the very same phrase used of the old Pharaoh with regard to Moses, sought to kill him. Now, many things here are uncertain, but one thing is certain, that they had neglected to circumcise this child. Why? Again, we don't know for certain, but this life living in Midian, there were good things about it, yes. The Lord was teaching him many things, living far away from God's people, living there in isolation in the land of Midian, but there are some bad things about that. And sometimes the things that would never happen were we among God's people, and, and everyone is moving together in a, a general direction. Sometimes we let things slide. That would never happen were we among God's people, were we in fellowship with God's people. And for whatever reason, uh, perhaps um, she thought this was a too stringent a thing. It seems to be the, the, the way that she then reacts when she does this thing, that this is not pleasant to her. Of course, it's not a pleasant thing. And Moses let, let her get away with it, I suppose. I don't know. Moses himself didn't, didn't do it. That's the problem. But for whatever reason, this term of the covenant, which had been plainly commanded, had not happened. And then we're surprised that it says the Lord met him and sought to kill him. But should we be so surprised that God would take the neglect of his covenant seriously? Why, the covenant is the very reason for this whole undertaking. The whole thing is about the covenant. You understand God has visited his covenant people. It is precisely because of the covenant that there's going to be the redemption. Moses is being sent as the redeemer of the covenant. And and add to it. Soon enough, he's going to be the lawgiver. He's going to be pinning all the great stringent requirements of the law of God. All of the, the things, surely among the most important, is this sign and seal of the covenant of circumcision. And for him to neglect it, and here he is, has a child whom he's neglected to put this sign upon, It's unbelievable. We should not be so surprised that the Lord would take this seriously. And so he did. Well, in verse 25, Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And so, in other words, the shedding of blood has secured the life of Moses. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Well, that's, again, very, very true. This was a bloody sign. That's what it was. And before the Lord Jesus Christ came, there was a lot of bloodshed, tons of it. And even the very sign and seal of the covenant involved the shedding of blood because it pointed us forward for the need of there being bloodshed in order that we would be saved, in order that there would be atonement for our sin. Now, that's why it was all changed after the cross, why the, the sign of initiation into the covenant became something very bloodless, just, just water, not blood. And we can be thankful for that, but we must not contemn God's ways before that. It was necessary to show this, this reality of the need of bloodshed for sin. Jesus bled and died. That was the end of blood sacrifice. And the covenant from here on out is is administered through bloodless signs. But it is no doubt that this is a bloody sign, and Moses was a husband of blood to her, and it was through the shedding of blood that his life and the life of the child were secured on that. And we receive these things in amazement, and we carry on then to number five, the good news. All right, let's just 
Remember these five things that I've already mentioned. The old enemy's dead. God will harden Pharaoh's heart in this work of judicial hardening. Firstborn for firstborn. A firstborn was going to die in order to secure some other firstborn. A husband of blood in which there must be shedding of blood even for, for Moses' life or perhaps a child's. But fifthly, the good news that the people believed. Because believe it or not, all the things that I've already said, they are good news for the people. God could have let these things go their own way. He could, there could never, you, you don't want blood, fine. The Lord doesn't have to provide it. There would be no blood and we would all die in our sins. The good news is that God is too good. God is too faithful to his own covenant promises to allow that to happen. And that he had provided these things. He was setting these things in place. He was visiting his people. Yes, he was cleaning house actually with his people as he did this. Judgment must begin in the house of God. With the house of God. And now he's declaring these things to his people. And they believe. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the deal, right, that Aaron was going to be the spokesman. And he did the signs in the sight of the people, just as he was told, and the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked on their affliction, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So despite all of Moses' fear, all of his reticence, are they going to believe? They're not going to believe. They did believe. God has visited his people. And all these things. You see, the, the great thing about it, when the, the, the news that Moses comes and gives to them is not, you're sinners, and God is finally going to visit uh, you. You're going to get what you deserve. Your blood is going to be shed. Your firstborn is going to die. No. No, no. God had provided a means of redemption that did not involve any further blood from them. There was going to be the the death of of a lamb, a Passover lamb. There was going to be the, the death of someone else's firstborn, of the Egyptians, those who did not immediately embrace this religion of the Jews, and some of them probably did. And there was going to be fighting, but the Lord was going to do that fighting. And all they needed to do was to stand back and watch it happen in faith. And brothers and sisters, that is the good news for you as well. This is a bloody chapter. It's a bloody gospel. There's lots of blood and death involved. But it isn't wonderful. But it's not your blood. It's not your death. It's not judgment being against you. The whole story of the redemption is that these things are being done upon others, particularly the Lord Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is receive God's visitation of his people. And God has visited and redeemed his people. (coughs) Praise God. Well, as we turn now to application of these things, this is all, as I say, about salvation and judgment and blood from one incident to the next. Of all these things. Let me just say, let me now reiterate the gospel in three different ways, okay? So in our first application, this is the gospel of blood. Gospel of blood. Do you recoil at all this blood and death? Probably some of you do. 
Well, let me say that the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it absolutely is an offense to man. That's why Paul says the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. They look at this instrument of torture and death, and they see nothing good in it, and they reject it as foolishness. But let me say, if you think that the message of the cross is an offense to you, sin is an offense to the holy God. Okay? It is a great offense. And the only reason you don't see it is because you don't see the, the totality of the sinfulness of sin. You see sin in brighter and nicer colors, and God himself sees sin. If you saw it the way he did, then you would understand. There is only one thing that can atone for sin, and that is blood. There are pretty gospels. There are clean gospels for pretty and clean people out there. And there are lots of them. And if you believe them, you'll be going to hell. But as for sinners, as for those who know there are sinners, there is but one gospel, and it is the gospel of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that gospel that saves and that gospel alone. The gospel of blood. Secondly, the gospel of God's sovereignty. Do you recoil at all this unvarnished display of God's sovereignty in the affairs of man? Do you say, who is God to be meddling in my affairs? Let me say, the whole idea of God's sovereign grace is an offense to man. Man does not like it. And if man chooses his own gospel, he inevitably chooses a gospel that has to do with choosing his own way. Recoils at the idea of God's sovereignty, choosing whom he will to save and, and whom he will to pass over. Well, in our sin, let me say, of course, if you are so wonderful and so great, then you can on your own go and choose God. But as for sinners, fallen sinners... We are so depraved in our sin that there is no hope for us doing that. Okay, Left to ourselves, there is only one way that we're going to go. Left to ourselves, we will always choose anything but God. In our hearts, we rebel against him, and we would never, ever, ever come to Christ. And it is the gospel, you see, it is part of the gospel, that God is so good and so sovereign that he does not leave us to ourselves. Rather, he overcomes our rebellion and changes our hearts so that we would desire to believe, we would desire to want him, desire even to seek him. John 6.44 says, no, man, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus said, that no one is able to come to me unless the Father draw him? If you do, then, the, then the, the news of God's sovereignty and dealing in this way should come to you as wonderful, good news. The gospel of God's sovereignty. Believe it. Thirdly, there is a gospel of faith. It's wonderful that the end of all this blood and death and judgment, the end of that, the people did believe. And they didn't have to personally bleed or die. They didn't have to personally fight. The Lord particularly says... You're not going to have to fight this battle at all. But rather, I'm going to fight for you. All they had to do was to put their trust in God and in his Redeemer, who in this case was Moses, and they would be saved. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that we have today. This is our gospel. We don't have to bleed. 
We don't have to die. God's not going to exact these things from our hands. He's going to do it from another. Someone else is going to bleed and die. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone else is going to fight the war for us. He's going to defeat the Egyptians. Going to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all we have to do is to believe. And I would say that's the best news of all. Because if there is an ounce of anything that we actually really had to do and do to some standard whatsoever, there's always the possibility, almost, okay, the inevitability that we would fail. Because we are so wretched. We are so weak. We are so sinful. Whatever thing that you could come up with to say, do this and you'll be saved, we would fail. How do we know? Because Adam, in a perfect, sinless condition, in a perfect, sinless environment, all he had to do was not eat of one single fruit. He couldn't even do that much. How much more so we in our fallen condition, in this fallen world, where all we see around us is sin. This is a really, really good gospel that we have. All we have to do is believe on the Lord and his Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are saved. No bleeding, no dying, no fighting, and that is good news. Believe it. Fourthly and finally, know that, that God does deal with his people first. Okay? As we have seen, God deals with his people before he does some great work among them. Now, God, of course, these people had been left to themselves, and Moses had been left to himself for a very long time. And he had gone a little bit feral. He had neglected some of the ordinances of God. And if any of you have, been, had, have gone feral, have gone prodigal for a while, you know the same thing is going to happen to you. You know, even if you're, for whatever reason, at a, at a poor church that doesn't teach the whole counsel of God, give it a little while. And because you're in that company and you're not being fed the whole word of God from, from week to week, yourself will allow all sorts of things that in the clear light of day don't make a lot of sense. This is a problem. But even those who are in good churches and who have the whole counsel of God, we also know that in our weakness we sometimes allow ourselves to do things. We carry on in sin. There are elements of the word of God and his law and his instructions to us that we're just not carrying out really. And we need to get right. We need to repent. First Peter 4.17 For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's, that's the thing. And so Moses had neglected this thing that God had commanded and he needed to be dealt with. Now thereafter he was used greatly. And thereafter a great, a great work was, was brought. Well look, this is what we're praying for, isn't it? In the work of reformation and revival. That's why we say it in, those, in that order. Reformation and revival. Because we are completely convinced, at least in theory, maybe not in practice, but we are convinced that God is not going to bring any great work of revival while his people carry on in disobedience. Whether in terms of our, of our doctrine or in terms of our life, our living. And so if there is sin, let us repent. If there are things amiss in our lives, let us, or amiss in this church, let us address them. Let us be clean vessels fit for God's use. None of these things are pleasant to be dealt with and addressed at the moment. But we know it brings something clean and pure, and it brings the blessing of God with it. And indeed, all of us, as we are together part of one body, we would wish not 
that some some part of us be left to gangrene, but rather that these things be addressed and made be. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, this is your word. You have spoken to us. You have declared these things to us. And though, Lord, sometimes these things are bitter for a moment, Lord, they are indeed sweet in the long run. We are thankful, Lord, that as, as sinners there is no other gospel. How else could we be saved except by blood and death and judgment? Of course these things would have to be. And, Lord, you have provided for them. How thankful, Lord, we, were, we are for the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh in order that your people might be set free. But, oh, how much more so the death of your own firstborn son that we today might be set free, that we might leave the captivity of sin and Satan and that we might be brought into the promised land to be with the, the Lord forevermore. Lord, we embrace these things. We embrace, furthermore, your sovereignty. We know we in our rebellion would never, ever come to you. And we are thankful, Lord, that you override our wickedness. It is of your sovereignty. It is of your grace. It is of your, of your godness that you do these things. And, Lord, we are thankful for them. All we have to do is believe. We pray that we would, and each and every one of us here would put our faith in the Lord and his Redeemer. We ask this in the the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.